there joy in the house of the Lord today? Yeah. Amen. Amen. The Lord is good. And that's, a, that's the, one of the amazing, you know, this foundations of faith that we believe God is in this place, that God is available to us, that God is present. It's a phenomenal thought. But uh, we believe it, and therefore you can think, man, if you think God is with you at all times, shouldn't it transform every one of your conversations and everything you are 24-7 through the week? And uh, that's what we believe. And so one of the things we want to do also is you kind of shape. You want, uh, as you come to worship with everyone else, it helps, like, gosh, Lord, give me a refresher to understand that and remember it, that it shapes everything I do through the week. Well, our scripture today is from Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground terrified but jesus came and touched them get up he said don't be afraid when they looked up they saw no one except jesus as they were coming down the mountain jesus instructed them don't tell anyone what you've seen until the son of man has been raised from the dead this is the word of the lord thanks be to god we'll end our reading there it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker this morning, Mako Nagasawa. Mako is the founder and director of the Anastasis. Am I pronouncing that right? Anastasis. 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 It's not a tomato-tomato thing, right? It's, okay, good. Anastasis Center for Christian Education and Ministry, which I should have had before I said it, um, where he and his team uh, teach, train, and write about early Christians' focus on Christian restorative justice and healing atonement. Fascinating stuff. Mako has lived with his wife, Ming, and their two kids and a foster daughter in Dorchester for 23 years. I met Mako probably close to 20 years ago when I was a missionary with Jews for Jesus, and he was with InterVarsity. We were both seeking uh, to reach out to college students, and I think we part partnered on a couple things back then. And this past year, we actually reconnected after many years when I was on a prayer walk with some other pastors in Dorchester actually organized by Mako's church in response to some of the violence that occurred in the neighborhood. Um, I enjoy Mako. He's kind, ironic, a great thinker, and a zealous actor. I don't mean actor in Hollywood terms. I mean that he really wants to live out his faith and act out his convictions. He's the real thing. That's why he lives in Dorchester. Uh, Mako is one of these guys for me that I frankly, just to be frank, I don't agree with on everything. And, uh, but who challenges my thinking. And you know something? It's a good thing to be challenged um, because I know he's thought through his convictions and I know of his wholehearted desire to follow Jesus and live out his faith in this world. And that's the right people um, 
And it's great to have people who you work through and you don't see everything eye to eye. That's a good thing, right? That's not something, I think our, our culture gets scared of that, right? We shouldn't be scared of that. We actually need that. I don't know about you, but I'm, I mean, I'm wrong all the time, you know? And it's just, you know, it, it's actually, yeah, it's true. And she goes, I listened to him. I know that to be the case. <laughs> so, um, um, Mako's also staying for a time of Q&A after services. You talk a little more about the work of the Anastasis Center. And what is this idea of, you know, restorative justice? What does he mean by that? Fascinating stuff. And so I hope you'll stay for the Q&A after, which will be across the hall in the music room. But at this point, I'd like to ask up Mako, give him a big hand. And uh, <laughs> it's great for you. Lord, I just want to pray for Mako, Lord. I am so grateful for him, my brother, coming here to serve like this and speak and share what's on his heart, Lord. And I pray you will bless this time. Give us all open hearts to hear from you and to hear what you want to say. Lord, uh, anoint him as he speaks. In Jesus' name. Thank you so much. Right Ride across. I can whisper too, but you know. Uh, so, so I, I I feel right at home here. It's really fun. Uh, let me, you know. <laughs> um, I I want to share a story uh, to begin with. The, the title of my message is "Moving Mountains." Uh, I wanted to share a story of how Jesus was present with me. On the morning of October 13th of last year, so just a few months ago, my friend Jesse got up and started to pray. Jesse lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And in his conversation with the Lord, Jesus said to him, pray for Mako this morning. Jesse did. And he texted me to let me know that God had put me on his heart. I received his text within one hour after I had walked into my mom's home and found that she had passed away. She had been 81 years old, and the autopsy later said that it was a, you know, an artery that was 90% blocked. In the moment, though, it was a complete shock because from the outside, I mean, she looked like she had been in great shape. She walked two, hour, uh, two miles a day. She had just gotten back from one of those organized tours to New Zealand where she rode like one of these bobsled things. <clears throat> uh, and one of her favorite things had been traveling. That morning I went to visit because she had not returned my phone calls. I had just had enough time to let the apartment manager know that she had passed and then to call 911. And then Jesse's text came. It reminded me, Jesus sees me. Jesus sees you. He knows and he's present. He's present with me. He's present with you. And God is good. God reminded me of his presence by his spirit in many other ways during the season. Uh, when my family and I prayed and talked this over, Jesus spoke through different passages of scripture. People in my church brought meals over and reached out 
and Jesus was present in their love. People offered to help me clean my mom's apartment, and Jesus was present in their kindness. When my sister flew in from France and we spent time just slowly going through mom's things and just trying to not rush ourselves, uh, and, and then viewing her body, we shared what the Lord was doing in each of our hearts. And there was a, just one of the, those moments, like the cloud of glory enveloping us. And then when my son and my dad each had difficult responses to my mom's death, uh, I felt like the Lord was present with me. He gave me words to say. <sighs> Friends, I, I tell you this because, you know, every January at our church, and, and I've heard here with you as well, you know, we begin the year with kind of a the, what is the mission and vision of our church, and really, what is the mission and vision of Jesus? And while some aspects of that are very specific to, you know, each community and contextual, I think there are some aspects that are absolutely basic and common to us all. Jesus wants to be present. Jesus wants to be present to you, to other folks in your neighborhoods, in your families, during times of grief especially, but also times of joy, times of hope. And so the passage we're going to look at reminds us of that. So we read from the Gospel of Matthew, the first of the four biographies of Jesus. It's really a manual for discipleship about how to follow Jesus. It was written by ostensibly at least one of the original 12 disciples, Matthew. So Matthew speaks with firsthand experience about what it's like to follow Jesus. What does it mean to experience Jesus' presence and then bring his presence to others? He also knows firsthand how Jesus would disciple or mentor other people to learn about his presence. And the Gospel of Matthew is really uh, all about this from beginning to end. In Matthew 1, Jesus is named Emmanuel, God with us. And then in Matthew 28, Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. So I want to start with one little verse that follows this episode that we just heard about. This is Matthew 17, verse 20, and Jesus refers back to this incident, this incident on the mountain. Jesus says, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This is the verse that promises so much and delivers so little, it would seem. Have you ever seen a mountain move? Like, what is he talking about? Well, it must be a metaphor. But of what? In our culture, mountain means obstacle. Especially if you like the song by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, the Motown 1967 song, Baby, There Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Ain't no valley low enough. Come on now. 
Ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you, babe. And so, you know, in that song and in our culture, typically mountain means obstacle. And so we tend to assume that's what Jesus means here. So we take that meaning into this verse and into this story and into our faith. And then we think that experiencing Jesus means moving obstacles away out of our lives. But then that sets up these weird expectations, right, for God and for Jesus. Is, does that, is that really true? Jesus just waves obstacles out of our way, out of our lives? If we have faith, and then we feel guilty. Well, maybe I, my, my faith is not even as big as a mustard seed. And all these weird things and convoluted thoughts just like infect our mind. The fundamental question is, is it true that mountain equals obstacle? No, it's not. In a, in a Jewish context, mountain is not obstacle. Mountain equals awesomeness. Mountain equals the presence of God. The first mountain where God met with people was Eden. Eden was a mountain. You may not be accustomed to thinking about that that way. Ezekiel 28 verses 13 and 14 make clear Eden was a mountain. And the physical description in Genesis 2 also strongly suggests that Eden was a mountain with a garden kind of on the, on the base or the perimeter or something like that because there are four rivers that flow out from Eden. And in nature, rivers converge. They find the lowest point. Rivers don't naturally diverge in nature unless you're talking about like some source of water, a spring or a lake flowing from a higher elevation point down to a lower elevation point. Eden was the first mountain from which God called people and said, meet me here. Breathe the air. Look around. Your vantage point changes. The second mountain, Ararat. Noah's ark came to rest on a mountain. Right? After the waters start receding and the Spirit of God was blowing over the waters and the waters go down like, wait a minute, that sounds just like the first creation. And, and life spreads out from Ararat after Noah builds a garden, just like life would have, should have spread out from Eden and the garden. The third mountain, Abraham's mountain, Genesis 12 and 13, when God said, Abraham and Sarah, come and be my Adam and Eve version 3.0 at this point, like come into a new garden land and Somehow they know, go up to a mountain, build an altar there, and worship God. The fourth mountain is, well, uh, there was a mountain where Abraham sacrificed or was going to sacrifice Isaac. But I'll leave that aside. That's, That's really interesting. Talk to me later about it. Sinai, Sinai, right, where God comes down in fire and says, Israel, come up here. And they send Moses, and then the next mountain is Zion, Zion, where God 
came in fire to dwell in the temple and call people towards himself. In Jesus' mind, in the disciples' mind, mountain did not mean obstacle. Mountain meant the presence of God. This is where God met with his people and called us to keep in mind. <clears throat> and what Jesus is saying here is, look, this mountain, this mountain experience that you just had, this is what you can move wherever you go. Notice Jesus said, you can move this mountain, this mountain, that like, <laughs> the, the one he just came down, like this one, not just a mountain, this one. And so what was this experience? Because this mountain is the experience that Jesus wants us to have, to carry with us, to move by faith. And as we read, <clears throat> uh, this is where Jesus was transfigured. He was lit up with divine light and glory. He took three of his disciples six days after, we'll talk about that, and Moses and Elijah appeared. Peter gets really excited. Let's build some tents so that we could stay here, I guess, longer. So what's going on, right? Jesus is deliberately echoing, at the very least, Moses going up to the top of Mount Sinai and meeting with God face to face. Where, and at, at that point, his face started to shine with divine light and glory. That's Exodus 34. Why did he do that? It's because Israel did not want to actually go through the divine fire. And uh, at, from Exodus 19, God had said, hey, I want all of you to come up here. And they're like, ah, no, no, we're a little afraid. Moses, why don't you go? Get this 80-year-old guy? Like to climb a mountain? Man, <laughs> no wonder God's a little disappointed. But Moses goes up, and while he's up there, Israel breaks the covenant already. And then God says to Moses, I will remake the covenant with you. And so I'll reaffirm the covenant. And Moses says, all right, but don't cast them aside. They will follow and all these things. So Elijah uh, has the similar experience. But Mo Moses is neat because in a limited sense, God was able to purify Moses as Moses went up the mountain, right? And that's the signified by his face shining. And that connects to uh, what, again, what Elijah experienced as God purified him from fear, arrogance, and hopelessness. More on these guys in just a moment. How many of you are fans of um, J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings, either the, the movies or the books? All right, so we could be friends. And those of you who did not raise your hand, please get into it. There's just so much to talk about. There, there are key times when the human characters are crowned with light or filled with light when they are faithful through struggle. Two major characters are Aragorn and Frodo. Aragorn uh, is crowned with light 
and uh, including on the day of his coronation. And Frodo, as he struggled against the ring, uh, when he was sleeping, Sam glances at him and does a double take because a light is coming from Frodo. They manifested the light because they were doing the will of the God figure, Eru Iluvatar, to fight Sauron and the One Ring, right? They were struggling hard to defeat evil, and this was taking a lot out of them. Tolkien was making a literary parallel to the Old Testament to explore what a pre-Christian story, pre-Christian literature would have been for the early English people, the Angles. Because the earliest uh, English literature we have is Beowulf, and it's already Christian. So Tolkien's wondering, like, well, there must have been a pre-Christian literature that actually probably helps explain why the English people became Christian so quickly. It must have been like this. And this is one of the themes. These were flickers of light, not the fullness, but they were flickers of light. And so in the biblical story, God's desire to shine through all people had to happen in stages. For a time, God dwelt in the temple in Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And Zion, again, was supposed to be a retelling of Mount Sinai, which was a retelling of Eden. And the high priest going into the sanctuary year after year was supposed to be a retelling of Moses going up the mountain. His going in retold the story of Moses going up and reaffirming the covenant, like the covenant would keep going. God will still be with us. But by the time of Jesus, the temple building stood empty. So all of the Psalms that say God's presence in the temple is light. We look, Lord, to you. By your light, we see light. All these things were, well, they, they were a little bit of a mockery. And, but they were also a hope. One day God will return. And his shining presence, the pillar of light and fire, will one day come back into the temple. And somehow the Messiah is going to be related to that. The anointed king would come. Maybe he would clean up the temple like Judas Maccabeus did, rededicate it to God, and then God's presence would land, boom, in the temple again on Mount Zion. But see, ultimately, God did not want to live in a building. He wanted to live in people. So when Jesus says, this mountain, you could take this mountain, he's saying, it's this experience of seeing God in, in human nature, like having the divine light reflected in human nature, first and foremost in Jesus, and then in this cloud that envelops us all. And so why does Jesus do this here and now? I mean, if we were Peter, James, and John, we might say, hey, this is really cool. This is a sign that Mount Tabor, this, that's the name of the mountain, Mount Tabor is kind of a promise to do this at Mount Zion. Right? If you're just thinking historically and what they would have wanted. And the cloud of God's glory will come and live in the temple again. Peter even connects us to the tabernacle, the tents, and the the temple idea when he asks, do you, want to, do you want us to build three tents? 
But Jesus already had other plans. He had to go all the way to complete his human faithfulness, to die a faithful death so that he could live the life none of us could live and die the death that none of us could die, which was in 100% faithfulness to the Father, to press the Holy Spirit into every cell in his body so that he could restore human nature to what God always wanted it to be, unified with him in partnership. In fact, this is why Matthew says it was six days later. Six days after what? Six days after Jesus had said he's going to go to Jerusalem and die there. Right? So the seventh day. This is the completion. This, the transfigured Jesus, is a reflection of Jesus in his resurrection, of what Jesus was actually doing all the way, but now suddenly it becomes visible. You can see it. This is what I'm doing. This is what it's going to be like. This work is going to be finished when I rise from the dead, a healed, purified human being. And the cloud embraces the disciples. I love that. The bright, the bright cloud of glory envelops them, and it's only for a moment. Because one day, because Jesus' work was not yet done, and one day when Jesus would die and rise, the cloud of God's Spirit would envelop them and enter them so that light and fire would radiate from their heads. Isn't that what we see in Acts 2? It's called tongues of fire. But each of the disciples there became many Mount Sinai's. Pentecost was the day the commemorating what? The giving of the law at Sinai and the lighting of the whole mountain by God's presence. And I think this is why Moses and Elijah showed up, right, to become part of the cloud of glory or to show that God brings them along as witnesses too because this is what they had wanted. They climbed mountains and desired to see God's face. They climbed the same mountain, if I'm not mistaken. They may also represent, as scholars have suggested, okay, the Torah and the prophets, right? Moses represents the Torah and Elijah the prophets, sure. They could also represent death and life within the Sinai Covenant because Moses died within the Sinai Covenant. Elijah somehow was taken up to God, so he lives in the covenant. But in any case, uh, you know, these are like bookends of some sort. These guys, they, they represent the totality of what God was doing in the past. And now Jesus says, I'm bringing you forward because you get to see now what you were hoping for the whole time. Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 says that something about this light, and he, he comments on this. Since then, we have such a hope, we act with complete frankness. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end, or the, the, the telos, of the glory that was being set aside, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. 
and all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. For it is the God who said, Light will shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Oh, man. See, we are drawn into this light. God wants us to participate in the light that is shown in the face of Christ. And it takes spiritual eyes to see it. But we can see it. That's what he's saying. We're capable of seeing. We see truly. And and so Jesus isn't doing this on Mount Tabor in order to build up to Mount Zion. He actually shines light on Mount Tabor in order to show that it's not just on Mount Zion that God's presence is going to be. It's any mountain, any mountain. And in fact, if it can be any mountain, then it can be anywhere. And this is why Jesus loved doing things on mountains. I love Matthew's gospel because you get to see a little bit of Jesus' mischievousness. It's not called that per se, but I mean, come on. And Matthew loved recording any of those moments. And so let's count all the mountain times uh, that, that occur in the Gospel of Matthew. All right, Matthew 4. The devil takes Jesus up to a high mountain to see if Jesus would sin like David sinned when David looked down from a high palace and saw a beautiful woman. But Jesus refused and conquered the temptation. And later, when he goes up a mountain to say, now all the nations are mine, I wonder if it's the same mountain. In Matthew 5, Jesus goes up a mountain to preach the Sermon on the Mount. It was a new and deeper Ten Commandments, and it's on a new mountain and all these things. So what's Jesus doing? He's, he's replaying, he's retelling Mount Sinai. He is God giving the, the new commands. He is also Israel receiving the commands into his own humanity. In Matthew 14, Jesus was on or near a mountain when he took five loaves of bread and multiplied them into 12 basketfuls of bread. That that is about the temple. He's picturing the temple because in the holy place in the temple, the old temple had 12 loaves of bread. And so Jesus is playing with the numbers. He's like, give me any bread. I will tell you, tell you, I'm the better David building the better temple anywhere and everywhere because God wants to be present everywhere. And just to prove that, in Matthew 15, he does it again. He takes seven loaves and multiplies it into seven large basketfuls of bread just to make the point. It's like, you thought I forgot about the, the 5, 7, 12 thing? No. And this is among the Gentiles now. One's Jewish, one's Gentile. Everywhere I want to be. I want God's presence to be. Here in Matthew 17, transfigured with light. This is a new temple, new mountain 
new presence of God idea. Then in Matthew 21, he stands outside of Mount Zion and says, be taken up and cast into the sea. I suspect what that means is uh, this, take the presence of God and put it into the sea of the Gentiles because the sea in the book of Daniel refers to the Gentile empires, right? The, the lands of the Gentiles. So again, take the presence of God and put it everywhere. And then in Matthew 28, at the end, Jesus gives his great commission on a mountain saying, I have authority over all, and I promise to be with you as you go claim the inheritance, all the people, right? This is like, this is like Moses overlooking on Mount Nebo in Deuteronomy 34, overlooking the promise in the garden land, but dying there. Like, sorry, you can't go. Jesus is the greater Moses saying, look, look at all the inheritance. Go get them. I go with you. So in a poetic sense, we are always on this mountain with Jesus looking over his inheritance, moving his presence everywhere you go. If you have faith, you can move this mountain. This one. The, the experience that used to only be on Mount Zion or Mount Sinai and restricted to one. You can move that presence of God within Jesus with you. So what does it mean, Newton Covenant, to bring God's presence to Newton and the greater Boston area or wherever you go. Now, I could tell stories about individual people bringing the presence of Jesus, and you've probably already heard many stories like that. And as I say this, you might, you might, you might be thinking where the Lord might actually be moving your heart and mind to reflect about a person or a situation. Please, Jot that down. Make a note of that because you, you definitely want to pray about that and return to it if, if something is coming to mind right now. But I'm going to tell a team story about, uh, well, involving me, but not just me, many people in my church. My wife Ming and I are part of, the, of a team of Christians uh, who are trying to make home ownership slightly more possible for other Christian people. Ming and I got married in part because we had both seen other Christians using housing as a way to do ministry. We had become passionate about intentional Christian community where Christians lived either near each other on purpose <laughs> or even with each other, depending on whether the physical housing kind of allows for that with integrity. And in the year 2000, we bought a triple-decker house in Dorchester in a mostly black neighborhood we wanted to partner with our friend Tisha and other folks and churches that we knew. We invited other Christians to live with us in our home. And so together, we got to know our neighbors. We turned our basement into a teen outreach center. We helped our neighbors turn a vacant lot right next to our house into a community garden. We helped start a uh, neighborhood association. And we were part of prayer meetings. So there's always been this outward component. Amongst ourselves, though, we, we also decided all right, we're going to charge below market rent at, at some point. I mean, this is the early, uh, no, actually, this is the mid-2000, uh, 2000, before 2010. 
we actually had a few people paying like 100 to 200 dollars a month in rent in boston and and what that allowed was people could get out of debt they could build up some savings or they could take jobs in the service or or ministry fields and last longer right because it's financially feasible in 2006 tisha as a montessori school teacher moved out to milwaukee in order to become part of another christian community there and she was able to buy a house because she'd saved as a teacher and as a single adoptive mother and started doing the same thing there others were able to move out and buy multi-family homes and start christian communities in other parts of dorchester also near providence rhode island one of my friends and his wife who are, they are at my church is now one of the third generation of this home ownership multiplication effort. And he says this, uh, he will tell you this right off the bat, something like this. I never thought I'd own my own home, especially because I used to be incarcerated for drugs. But I'm, I'm not just doing that, I'm also now helping other Christians financially also, and I'm contributing to the body of Christ I share these stories because, first of all, I want to tell you, it's doable. See, it's, it's doable. I mean, I understand, not everyone can. <clears throat> and I, I think it takes resources, it takes prayer, it takes thought, it takes maturity. Like emotional and sexual integrity, that really helps. But it is doable. And it's important because I think every church needs to think about how to build stable communities. Why? Because Boston is such a transitional area. I know Park Street Church a few years ago said that it turns over 50% of its congregation every five years, 90% every 10. Now, I'm sure that's unusual. I mean, that sounds unusual to me, but it illustrates a point that I think every church here faces. How many farewell to Boston parties have you been to? And, and how do you feel after that? A little deflated. Right, because the, the emotional cost is on the people who stay. If you're leaving, you're like, I'm excited. It's harder to stay. And so <clears throat> I'm not saying that everyone should or could do something like this, but I think every church needs to identify like some people who are interested in staying and, and, and really helps resource those people. If you're gonna invest in your witness, things like this matter, totally matters. Another reason is even if you don't stay in Boston, is think about the long-term health of Christian people and Christian community all around the nation and the world. Generally speaking, people are able to give more financially when they're homeowners. Renting is costly given our tax code and other things. It's generally true that people could give more if they can own their own, the, own their home. Here's the challenge though. In the 1970s, housing cost 30% of one income. Can you imagine? I mean, nowadays, especially on the coast, housing costs 40 to 50% of two incomes. The entire model of uh, the, the suburban church is predicated off of statistics and, and financial re realities that are no longer true. Because 
who now, when we do things like plan a church, who's going to pay for it? People are working a lot more also than they were in the 70s, week for week, in terms of like hours that people put in. Things are more exhausting. Uh, labor is making less. And so who, when we think about, well, who's going to actually, who has the energy to get to know their neighbors and be involved in things? Well, yeah, like who's going to do that? And another reason you might want to consider this, this is the last reason, this is why Garrett and I get into these long discussions. Do we agree about this? Is because you just might want to help undo Christian heresies from the past. Part of the reason why we're in this situation, think back to the 2008-2009 financial crisis, is because our entire banking system, I, I think it's pretty exploitative. And... <clears throat> uh, and especially, it impacts people of color more, right? So the, the um, that's just a reality I can't avoid where I live. Um, but the, the issue here is both banking, our banking system and ideas of race come from Christian heresies. They do. So, so you know, in scripture, people, I, I mean, Interest rate lending, it's a big no-no, right, in Scripture. The Council of Nicaea said, we're going to start taking steps to limit interest rate lending. You know who really changed all that? John Calvin and the New England Puritans. Now, it was slow, it was gradual, but, you know, on paper, Catholic and Orthodox folks still uh, vigorously critique the banking system and interest rate lending because the one, the one undergirds all the other, the, the, the rest. Uh, we as Protestants, and I say we, we as Protestants, I, I'm assuming you're Protestant, is uh, we, we, where's, the la where's been the Protestant critique of the banking system? Why isn't there one? Because largely we've forgotten this thing, how th this critique of interest rate lending, that it's inherently exploitative. When we pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, what do we mean? Do we not also mean <laughs> that we hope that everyone else would also be protected from the power of indebtedness? Do we not at least think that? And yet, our, the more uh, our lives are subject to the banking system and indebtedness, whether it be mortgage debt, student debt, healthcare debt, I mean, credit card debt, the more life is just sucked out of us. And so you might want to think about that. Like, just as an act of resistance and defiance against the current system, the financial system, but also as a way just to do a small part to undo a Christian mistake from the past. And, and notice, I'm speaking to you as a Christian. Is this a left or right issue? I don't know. I haven't said anything about that, have I? I'm speaking as a Christian. And then we get into how the banking system was leveraged by the government in the service of white supremacy in our real estate market, starting in the 1900, early 1900s by realtors, bankers, and developers 
who developed racial covenants and whites-only clauses in deeds so that ownership of houses had to be segregated. That just grieves me because I grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, and those same real estate agents were, became the consultants to the federal government during the FHA, during the New Deal, and the GI Bill, which then sponsored the creation of our suburbs, segregated suburbs, very dependent on cars. So wh what does that come from? That comes from early Christian mistakes about the idea of that there is such a thing as race connected to intelligence, it's, it's very sad, from the Jesuit days, and then Protestants took that over. So again, uh, whether you want to, I, I know this, this may be kind of a different way of understanding this material. I, I totally welcome your questions, pushback, that's fine. Um, but historically speaking, the endorsement of interest rate lending and the idea that we could just ditch ethnicity or language and just group people by their skin color is, unfortunately, it originates within Christian circles. And so you may want to do something about that if you're going to follow Jesus, because this is about the witness of Jesus. This is about how do we think about bringing the presence of Jesus into our world, into our neighborhoods. And I would love your partnership in this. I hope that you are flourishing years from now as a community because you have thought creatively, not just individually, but as a team about how to stay here, how to invest relationally in a, in a community, in a city, that's just always turning over. Again, I, I know that that's not everyone's calling and experience or plans, but, but I think every church needs to think together about, you need to think as a team about that. And again, regardless of whether you stay here or not, please consider what it means to take some of these values and principles and the presence of Jesus elsewhere to help people get out from underneath the power of indebtedness. Let me pray to close our time, and please come and talk to me, you know, in the class time afterwards if you would like to chat more about this. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you so much, first of all, for who you are, for all the ways that you're good to us, Pour out love and mercy and kindness to us by your Spirit and through us to a world that deeply, deeply needs it. I pray that you would help, help us understand our own history, help us to understand just the challenges that we face uh, together as a team, as friends, as partners in ministry who want to see your work go forward. And I thank you so much for each and every person. Pray that you would bless the questions that they have, the convictions that you are growing, and the conversations that are happening and that will happen here at Newton Covenant. 
In your precious name, Jesus. Amen.